Hello and welcome to episode 1921 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Limberg of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? At a loss with what to do with myself. There's no yeah. baseball all week. What is yeah. this? Is this how the offseason is, but even longer? I mean, maybe, although not as long as some recent off-seasons have been. So oh, that's true. You know, yeah, that would gonna... be a nice little silver lining after yeah. the last Out of the World series. So just, yeah. You know, I never really endorse the, the sit around and, and stare out the window and wait for spring approach to the off-season. There are better ways to do it. There are better things to do. But there will be less time to sit there and stare out the window and wait for spring if that's what you're inclined to do. It's, yeah. uh hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's, it's a nice little – it'll be good when people immediately post the number of days until pitchers and catchers report as they tend to do after the World Series ends. It'll be a few fewer days than usual. Yeah, it'll be a number of days but a countable number. Isn't that mm-hmm. nice? Yeah. So can I say something nice about Facebook? <laughs> I mean, sure, but I I might have feedback. (laughs) So there's really only one thing I use Facebook for anymore, which is the Effectively Wild Facebook group. I will sort of auto post my articles there sometimes too, but I don't really use it in any kind of personal way. I don't post updates or anything like that. And I rarely friend people either. Mm. People friend me and I'm a friendly guy. So generally I say, okay. Because again, it's it's not really a, I guess it's a personal, not like a professional page, but mm. I don't have anything personal on there in particular. I've had like the same profile photo for I don't know how long, like 10 years or something, and you can't even see me in it really. So that's the level of engagement I have with Facebook other than the Effectively Wild Facebook group, which keeps bringing me back. But there is now a second selling point of Facebook, which is that when I log on, Facebook recommends friends, right? It it wants me to friend people. Yes. And very often, I don't know whether you've had this experience too, but it will recommend that I friend random baseball guys. <laughs> so, I guess it's <laughs> I guess it's because I'm just friends with a lot of like baseball industry yeah. people, you know, like other writers or whatever or or maybe it's that people who friend me, like I'm, I'm Facebook friends with a lot of complete strangers. <laughs> I'd like to think that they're nice people. I don't know. Or assume that they just know me or my work somehow. And again, I, I let them in usually because uh, eh, why not? What are they going to see in there? Right. And because of that, I imagine that the people who are inclined to friend me because they've read my writing or something like that, probably they're also friending a bunch of other baseball people whom they've heard of for some reason. And maybe because of that, because then I have mutual friends with those people who I don't actually know, Facebook thinks that I should just be friending all these other people I don't actually know who are very often baseball connected. So it seems like the recommendations rotate. So if I log on one day, it'll show me one smattering of strangers, and then the next day it'll show me another smattering of strangers, I guess because I didn't bite at the first group. (laughs) Just today, just this is a random day. Here are the baseball people whom I recognized when I looked at my Facebook friend recommendations. Just just the former major leaguers. It's like a it's like a remember some guys like meet a major leaguer every time I open Facebook. So Gene Lamont is a recommended Facebook friend who, based on how things are going, seems like he might be up for the White Sox manager job any day mm, now again. Yeah. Kelly Gruber, Joey Turdoslovich, Chris Young, 
Not the Rangers, Chris Young, the MLB Network, Chris Young. Okay. I was just going to say, you need to be more specific. Yeah. Marquise Grissom. (laughs) Okay. I was liked. I enjoyed Marquise Grissom. I'd like to be his friend. Lenny DiNardo, (laughs) Scott Main, and then a a few other people, maybe not major leaguers, but like like Joey Gomes, not Johnny Gomes, (laughs) not Connie Jones, but Joey Gomes, former minor leaguer. Sandy Alderson was on there. Isla Borders was on there. That's cool. But I'm mostly focusing on the former major leaguer. So like every time I I log on there, it's like, do you want to be friends with this former major leaguer you probably haven't thought about in years? And I don't. I mean, I I don't not want to be their friends, but I don't want to bother them. I'm not in the business of, of friending randos, really. But I... Enjoy the little glimmer of recognition. It, yeah, you know, it's, it's like what David Roth got when he would open up a pack of baseball cards yeah. and remember some guys, and I'm remembering them too. Except I'm seeing their Facebook profiles, and it's interesting. Sometimes it'll be like them in their heyday, you know, like yeah. them in their prime in uniform on the field. It's like okay, they're they're broadcasting to everyone that this is a former major league baseball I player. I used to be a major league baseball player. Yeah, and we all you know present versions of ourselves right. in public and on social media and everything and that's what they're broadcasting others though not at all it's just you know just some guy you know it's like just someone like with a polo shirt or whatever or like with their family sometimes but you know like it just reminds you these are just guys now granted these are for the most part i I guess i named a couple good players there but these are uh, a lot of fringy guys a lot of remember some some guys (laughs) journeymen amongst them yeah and you might think that that the journeymen might be even more likely to want to advertise that they were former major leaguers right because you know if you weren't that good and people might not remember you as that then you might want to just jog their memory by having a photo of you in uniform let's say interesting yeah i don't know if there's a a pattern there necessarily but it's it's just kind of nice to be reminded a that these guys exist yeah and b that they're just dudes you know they're just like off doing their thing they're they've moved on from baseball in many cases they're just living the family life they have some other occupation now they're just wearing a polo shirt like they're just civilians now and they have facebook profiles (laughs) like a lot of the rest of us do just you know leading regular lives so this is the second good thing about facebook and it's not necessarily replicable. If uh, all of you listening create a Facebook account, if you don't have one, Facebook will not necessarily recommend a bunch of random former major leaguers to you. It requires having some sort of network here that you have not exactly curated, but has happened somehow. But if you are in that position, then it's just a nice little thing. I, I look forward to opening Facebook, not only to go to the Effectively Wild Facebook group, but because I want to know. It's like clicking on baseball reference on the like, take me to a random page button, except I, I see some former major leaguer smiling face. Yeah, I mean, it is. I wonder what my approach would be, because on the one hand, like you want to maybe it's really important to signal that you used to be a big leaguer, but maybe you've like accepted that you're not anymore and you've moved on. Maybe you don't want to like answer a bunch of questions about it if you are recommended to randos. Maybe you really like 
like I bet a lot of them are playing golf or there are a lot of them playing golf. That seems like a thing. That... <laughs> yeah, not today, but certainly sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like you just like some of them are playing golf. So there's that, you know, they do like their families. Uh, so mm-hmm. they want to be like, here's my beautiful family. Yep. I don't know what my approach would be. I also only use Facebook at this point for the Effectively Wild Facebook group. Mm-hmm. I have a, a very strict no randos policy, mm-hmm. which I'm sorry to the folks who have been like, oh, I'm going to friend Megan. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's nothing personal. I just, yeah. even though my only use for it really at this point is one that is largely professional, I don't, I don't cross pollinate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my public social media is Twitter. That's it. Yeah. The rest is not for no, I'm sure it's like you're operating the way it's maybe better to operate, which is that if you're interested in seeing updates from your actual friends, <laughs> then it's probably good to restrict it to your actual friends because yeah. that could be nice if you want to keep track of your former school friends or whatever or see their family photos or something. Great. But as it is, if I actually look at my news feed, then it's just news about a bunch of people I don't know largely. Right. Just not all that helpful to me, really, unless it's about some random former Major League Baseball player. Right. And, you know, like, if that's not the way that you want to use Facebook or Instagram or what have you, it's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying everyone has to use it the way I do. I'm just saying that's the way I use it. So yeah. I don't get as many. I don't get quite as many. Although I do get some where people are like, do you know this person? I'm like, I sure don't. <laughs> you know, Jeff Frank Core and I are not acquainted, but thank you for thinking yeah. I want to be his friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of nice. It's just a reminder. They're just people out there in the world. Yeah. I guess Gene uh, Lamont Seems to be still a senior advisor to the general manager of the Royals in his well. This is the other thing. It's like professional baseball. <laughs> you get your you, you you make those friends, and then you're like you're none of you actually that far removed from the game. Like the the number right. of you who are really doing something different quite small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, this is an off-label use of Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's uh, it's kind of nice. So yeah, but that's my little observation about Facebook and baseball players. Can't wait to find out who the smattering of strangers, but not complete strangers, people I have heard of, at least even if they haven't heard of me, that I will see yeah. next time I sign on. You just never know. Yeah. So I was looking at the Zips. Fangraphs odds yeah. for the World Series, which are available now. And yes. they're not as lopsided, I guess, as, as, as one you might have thought. Think. Yeah. yeah. They're still lopsided, but they're they not, are. they're, <laughs> you know, you're not looking at it like that's not a stable table. Don't put anything heavy on that. You know, <laughs> right. you're like, there's an incline, but it's, yeah. it's a hikeable one. I'm putting all sorts of things together and saying, which of them sticks? I don't know. Much like this weird <laughs> table I've built. It's like a 58-42, yes. roughly, advantage for the Astros now, which, if you want to take heart as Phillies fans, I believe that this is not the most lopsided matchup of this postseason. Oh, no. There have been some some 60-40s, some, yes. some slightly more. I think it was uh, Mets-Padres was a 60-40, and I we think know that's how, right. how that ended. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that. And also Astros over Mariners was a 60-40. That that did go that way. Dodgers over Padres, I think, was also about 60-40. So there have been multiple upsets already this postseason where a bigger underdog, according to the Zips odds, has advanced, has won, albeit in a shorter series. So that's something. Take heart, Phillies fans. I mean, Phillies fans 
hearts are full as it is, but if you are at all intimidated by the Astros, as you should be, it's uh, it's not a coin flip, but it is also like not the most heavily weighted unfair coin. <laughs> right. I'm going to say something, and I mean this exclusively as a compliment. I mean it 100% as a compliment. If something could exceed 100% as being a compliment, that's the way I would mean this. This is a population of people where they literally have to grease the poles to keep them from climbing, where you say, I dare you to do that, and they're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do swear, I'm gonna do it and yep. so philly people don't strike me as intimidated by the astros whether it would be advisable for them to be intimidated or not no they are they are prone to catastrophizing but it i think that that tends to come in game that is an mm-hmm. in-game activity or a post-game activity it does not strike me as a lead up to game activity and so i think that uh philly fans are probably looking at those odds the way that they looked at a greased light pole and say but could I still climb it though? Let's give it a try. You know, yeah. and I mean that again, one hundred percent as a compliment. Yeah, well, you have to have that attitude, and it's it's totally doable. Like, yeah, it's lopsided on paper and yes. in zips, as we discussed last yes. time. But I do think that the Phillies are a better postseason team than their regular season stats would suggest for for a few reasons. I mean, A, if you think that they've been a different team under Rob Thompson than Joe Girardi and you want to just toss out the Joe Girardi results, you could do that. And also, I think you have a fully operational Bryce Harper here, which has not been the case for some months. That's a difference maker. And then I think probably the Phillies roster – You know, if you have less depth, it does benefit you to have to play a a best of seven instead of 162. This is, by the way, a best of seven. Got to win four. Four. I think we've we've mentioned that, but just a reminder. So Four, but uh, importantly, not consecutively. No carryovers, no consecutive, nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. But – I think it, it, you know, you look at the Phillies and, and their top two starters are great. Their top three are, are playable. Yep. And they have a good two or three guys at the back of the bullpen. Yep. So when things get compressed, then it, it favors them. I think it it's still an advantage that the Astros have the depth that they do. But yep. it's a greater advantage, I would say, over the course of a very long season than it is over yes. a week or two. Sure. So. That probably narrows the the gap a little bit, yeah. but you know it's it's very plausible that the Phillies could win. <laughs> yeah, and you know I think if you're a Philly fan and you're looking for like a a reason to be excited, uh, like you could think back. Well, the last time you know the Astros lost a game, <laughs> I think Aaron Nola was on the mound. Is that the last time ever? What if I looked it up, Ben? <laughs> I don't really recall them ever losing. I don't think they've ever lost, but I know mm. that they, those Astros, I know that they did lose to the Phillies. I believe they were Nola on the mound. And did you know something, Ben? You know, he's starting he will be on the mound very soon. Yeah, very, very soon. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think game two. I'm given to understand is anticipated mm-hmm. to be a Nola start. So you know, you could be like, yeah, yeah, okay. I've <laughs> pulled up a thing you know, on on October third, mm-hmm. the Philadelphia Phillies. At the Houston Astros, so in even in enemy territory, and mm-hmm. you know what they did? They won three. All right, they won huh. three runs to zero runs. That's that's what they did. You there know, you go. Bryson so Stott was... hit a home run. So did yeah. Kyle Schwarber. Well, look at that. 
the Mariners and the Yankees' problem is that they did not have Aaron Nola, I guess, and the Phillies do. So there's your trump card. And we also got an email from Patreon supporter Will, who is an Astros fan, and he pointed out that the Astros are 0-2 against perhaps flukily good NL East teams on a heater in the World sure. Series of late. Yeah. So perhaps it, it can be a, a trifecta. We'll see. I just hope it's a, a long competitive series either way. So that would be nice. Yeah. And I guess these odds, though, don't factor in the fact that Kyle Schwarber was riding a mechanical bull <laughs> recently. I don't know whether you saw the footage. Oh, I saw it. Yeah. So, you know, he he held on to that steed for quite some time. He was eventually jilted by the bull and he did fall. It looked fairly gentle, but <laughs> that is like we've talked about the the multiple celebration related injuries that have happened already this postseason. Yeah. With David Robertson on the Phillies, Lance McCullers on the Astros, like Humans are fairly fragile beings. And on the one hand, I don't want to tell Kyle Schwarber not to have fun and and celebrate and be the prince of the city at this point. On the other hand, mechanical bull, I don't know. (laughs) Like there are definitely less risky activities that baseball players have gotten hurt performing. I simply would say, Kyle Schwarber, don't do that. Don't do it. You, again, leave that to like, leave the mechanical bull to Philly fans. Yeah. Leave it to, as we've established, a population of people who look at a grease light pole and see a challenge rather Mm -hmm. than a deterrent, okay? Leave it to them. Because if they break themselves, it'll be troublesome to them and, you know, potentially their families. But once they hurt themselves, they'll just sit there and watch you play in the World Series. Whereas if you get hurt, you're going to hear it from them and you'll feel very sad. So you stay away from that for now, you know, just, Mm -hmm. just stay away. Yeah, I mean, have fun, like, go out, be in the bar, have sure. people buy you rounds, like, whatever. I mean, what's the point of, of buy, buy other a, Buy other yeah, people rounds, you know? That too, sure, yeah. <laughs> I guess he can afford that as well, but... Yeah. Yeah, like enjoy the fruits of uh, being a Major League Baseball player on a team that is going far in the playoffs and is just the toast of the town and everything. Like, why why go to all these links? Why make all the sacrifices and put in all the practice time that Kyle Schwarber certainly has over the course of his life if you can't enjoy and take a little victory lap and just bask in the adulation of a city? But also... Maybe maybe save the mechanical bull riding. Just you yeah. know, like just defer it. Not don't do it. Like I don't know whether Kyle Schwarber's contract specifies that he cannot ride mechanical bulls or real bulls for that matter. Sure, I'm sure that the floor was padded and maybe, oh yeah, maybe the operator of the mechanical bull was was going easy. Like I'm sure they knew who was riding that bull and would not want to be responsible for injuring a crucial player for the Phillies on the eve of the World Series. But yeah, I might say exercise restraint. Like it's not it's not riding a motorcycle and and breaking a bone and and doing it again after you already did that. <laughs> it's a little less dangerous than a motorcycle, a lot less dangerous, but still, you know, just take proper precautions, I would say. I guess that it makes sense that there would be varying levels of what is the right unit of measure here? A buck to a bull? <laughs> do You know yeah. how they you know how they make well, bulls do the bull stuff, right? That's right. Really Broncos buck. Nice. No, not the mechanical ones, though. Yeah, well, because they're not real, Ben. No. Yeah. He didn't ride a real bull. He's not Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> yeah, Broncos Buck, I guess, 
bulls could buck. I don't know. Why not? Yeah, bulls, bucking, sure. But uh, so bucking, we'll use that as the measure. It sounds a lot like another word, but that's that's neither here nor there, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense that there would be different bucking settings to a yeah. mechanical bull, right? They don't want to yeah. just, if you've never ridden one before, they're not just going like, to leave no, you. They don't want to buck you up. Right. <laughs> Such a dangerous segment we stumbled into. I guess that's fitting given the subject matter. But yeah, if you're the person who operates the mechanical bull, you have big responsibilities there. Like you went yeah. to work probably thinking, I'm just hoping no one cracks their head open on my watch because then I got to do stuff and there's paperwork. And then Kyle Schwarber walks in and you're like, oh gosh, the, <laughs> like the hopes and dreams of a whole city might be. Yeah, you know, determined by the setting, the bucking setting that I use. Yeah. Such such intentional articulation on my part here, because I don't, <laughs> you know, I did one swear, a related swear, and it was a big swear. But we're not trying to get anybody in trouble on their ride home, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't want to be the the Bartman. I mean, Bartman unfairly maligned. Oh, poor guy. If you are the the mechanical bull operator who like <laughs> pressed the lever all the way to the top or set it to the the max bucking setting and just bucked Kyle Schwarber right off there and he landed the wrong way and you know he's he's a, a hefty gentleman and he yeah. lands on on the wrong digit or something it doesn't take much not to be available for the next couple of weeks so yeah be careful maybe my views on this are are colored by watching the taylor sheridan verse and, and yellowstone and you know it can be dangerous to to be bucked i have learned but i guess less so again by a mechanical bull but still you just have time for so much TV. <laughs> do I, though? I don't know if I do have time, but I... Well, you sacrifice <laughs> sleep I, to get I, it, I, so it seems like, a, <laughs> seems like a not great bargain to me, but I yeah. just remain in awe of how much more plugged into the culture. That sounds... That's like a uh, an affirming way to describe it. My initial mm. approach was judgmental. You're just like a lot more plugged into the culture than I feel like I am sometimes. It's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yellowstone is a pretty important part of the culture. I People would sacrifice People love sleep. that show. They do. Yeah, they, rightfully so. There's like a extended universe I'm given to understand. Oh, yeah. Extending more and more all the time. Across <laughs> space and time, right? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. Many different eras of the the Sheridan verse. It's wild, but who would have known? Yeah. So another advantage, I think, maybe that the Astros could derive from the depth, though. I was just saying that maybe depth matters a little less at this time of year than it does over the rest of the year. But I do think that one thing that we have speculated about in the past, but never really knew existed, and and now know exist, is the playoff, especially playoff familiarity effect for relievers, mm. which. When we had Cameron Grove pitching bot from Twitter on the podcast, and I mused out loud, I think, when he was on about whether there might be some reliever familiarity effect within a series, let's say, and he then did the research and, and showed that there is, and there is a significant one seemingly, especially in a playoff series because playoff series longer than your average regular season series, and so you're going to have more opportunities to see the same relievers over and over again, plus you have advanced scouting and more prep and everything. So, you know, I'm not saying that, like, Bryce Harper hit that home run off of Suarez because he had faced Suarez in one plate appearance previously in that series and I think grounded out or something. But statistically speaking, it does seem like when you see the same reliever within the same series, especially, let's say, three times or more, there is a real penalty there. 
And I do think that that's something that maybe the Astros are less susceptible to just because they don't they have... seemingly have an endless supply <laughs> yeah. of very good relievers. Yeah, you can just kind of pick a name out of a hat and you do okay. Whereas with the Phillies, it's like, all right, it's high leverage. Like we have, you know, I guess maybe four four guys, maybe like, you know, you have Alvarado and you have Dominguez and you have Robertson, you have Eflin. There's a smaller circle of trust, perhaps. Yeah. And with the Astros, not like, I mean, obviously there's a hierarchy and there are some higher average guys and lower leverage guys, but you could feel comfortable putting anyone in at any time almost if you if you have to. And so I don't know whether that's something that Dusty Baker's thinking about or that the Astros front office is thinking about, like, hey, let's go easy here. You know, let's in general, like you should maybe, I, I guess, save your guys' arms, especially at this time of year. And so save your leverage guys for high leverage moments regardless. Although having been off for several days at this point, you might want to just get them some work also. So that becomes a consideration. But I guess really like you're not going to not bring in your fire breathing closer guy because he's pitched a couple times in the series already. Like he's still going to be your best option most likely. But if you don't want that option to be diminished at all in effectiveness, then you just have to maybe be a bit careful when it comes to like, well, do we want to use this guy for an inning to get him some work? Or maybe it's like not really high leverage, but it's not a blowout. Like maybe we'll just get this guy in there. But if it is someone whom you expect to be in that spot in a make or break game a week later or less than a week later, then yeah, you you want to maybe use those resources sort of sparingly. It does seem like this is an effect that does carry over into the regular season as well, although less so, and and it happens less often in the regular season. But it it seems pretty pronounced, and it makes sense to me that it would be. So I'll link to Cameron's research from earlier this year on that. But it has been fairly convincing to me. And so that's something I think about, like, when the Yankees were using Wandy Peralta in every single ALDS game. Right. And I guess he had only one, I think, where things went awry. And yeah. it was, like, the middle one, and he had a couple good games after that. But in addition to the fact that there might be some fatigue that sets in at that point, there does seem to be some familiarity effect. So something that's worth keeping in mind like we're we're fully on board with the times to the order effect for starters in the postseason certainly and i'm sure that there is also some familiarity effect for starting pitchers within a series i i looked at that in the past and and didn't really come up with anything but maybe if you looked at it in the way that Cameron did you could find some signal there but it's kind of a corollary i guess of not wanting guys to face the same hitters multiple times in the same game too often You also, it seems, don't want them to face the same guys multiple times or many times in the same series. Well, and I wonder if we will continue to see, as we have increased potential via the expanded format for division foes to meet at various points in the postseason, Mm. if you will see that sort of familiarity effect potentially compound because you have guys who have seen each other for who have already seen each other for like 19 games during right. the season. Although, you know, who knows? But like maybe you, you see that even more pronounced because we have division foes who are already like, hey, we know them. We don't mm-hmm. like them. You know, that's yeah. what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's just something I'm keeping in my mind as I watch these things. And also, I think one of the, the stakes of this series, we've talked or thought about 
Dusty Baker, you know, everyone's talking about how people are rooting for Dusty and his his players are rooting for Dusty to get his first World Series win. As a manager, I should specify, he did win one as a player, but I think he's been a manager longer than he was a player at this point, and and he does not yet have a ring. So I think even Astros haters, like that might be sort of the the silver lining if the Astros win well, at least Dusty got one, right? And and on the other hand, like people will certainly say that about some Phillies and hey, Bryce Harper, he doesn't have a ring and other guys on that team too. So whoever wins, like you can you can find some oh, I could be happy for that guy at least. But I was thinking, A, it's it's kind of weird that like we judge managers and, and executives on rings. Like Bruce Bochy is a Hall of Fame manager, I think everyone agrees, because he's won whatever it is, four pennants and three World Series, right? Like if right. you win three World Series, like you're basically a shoe-in as a Hall of Fame manager. And he has, I think, a sub-500 career managerial record, right? And you know, just like it doesn't even matter. He's, he's Bruce Bochy. He, he's got all the rings. And we really judge managers based on that. Like Joe Pesnanski wrote something earlier this week, I think, about Davey Johnson, who is, you know, sometimes mentioned as a, a Hall of Fame candidate. Like he's he's one of the few managers in baseball who's 300 games over 500 for his career. And it's a pretty exclusive list yeah. of guys. It's like Bobby Cox, Walter Alston, Earl Weaver, Tony La Russa, Sparky Anderson, Joe Torre, Dusty Baker, Davey Johnson, Terry Francona, and Dave Roberts could could join that club next year. But that's an exclusive list. And Baker is on it, Davey Johnson on it as well. And maybe there are other knocks against Johnson or maybe he didn't have enough years in or something. But like it seems to just dwarf everything. If you're a multiple World Series winning manager, then you're a Hall of Famer. If you have a great career record but have not won one, then you're not basically. It's it's almost disqualifying, which is kind of odd because we don't think of it that way for players, right? It's like it's a nice feather in your cap if you want a ring or more than one, but it doesn't keep you out. I mean, Fergie Jenkins never pitched in a postseason game. He's a Hall of Famer. And, you know, it's looked on as not your fault, really. Yeah. Whereas with a manager, I guess, even though a manager only has the talent they're given, I guess because it's a manager's job to get more out of that talent, whereas with a player, it's just get the most out of your own talent. People don't really hold it against you, I guess, on a career level if right. your teams weren't that great. Well, so, I mean, some people do, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess some people do, but but it would not keep you out, right? No. Whereas like Dusty, this might make or break his Hall of Fame case, right? Yeah. If he wins this or, or not. Potentially, I think a lot of people would advocate for him to get it anyway, but it would be a a harder road. And it's kind of weird, just like given that we have accepted that there's a lot of randomness that goes into this. And especially now, like when having the best team in baseball is far from a guarantee of actually winning a pennant, let alone a World Series. Like there's just so much randomness that it seems like as we adjust our baselines for like starting pitchers, you know, where you're not going to have to have 300 wins to get in the Hall of Fame as a starting pitcher because no one's going to have that many wins. For a manager, maybe like in this era, 
when there are just so many playoff teams and and even the best team in baseball is a significant underdog to win the World Series any given year, like, I don't know that that should be looked on as a prerequisite. So it'd be nice if Dusty won one. But if it didn't, you know, because like he's gotten this far, right? So are we saying that like the whole evaluation of his career rests on whether he wins a best of seven series over the next couple of weeks? Like, you know, is that going to swing him from from one column to the other? When you think of it that way, it seems sort of silly. I think that it makes sense for front office leaders to be judged by how many World Series their team or maybe postseason versus a more useful way of thinking about it, how many postseasons their team makes. Because I think Mm -hmm. that directionally, like that's what we want. We want teams to be oriented toward making the postseason and winning there. So I, I think that having a sense of like, how many Octobers did you matter in is like useful for that reason. But I agree mm-hmm. that having a specific fixation on how many World Series won maybe obscures, you know, what a manager really has control over. But I understand that instinct too because it's something we can point to that's measurable and that we see. And so mm-hmm. I really think that we struggle to properly evaluate managers at all, whether it's in the course of a manager of the year vote or just the way that we talk about them in sort of our day-to-day assessment of their team during the regular season. Because as we've discussed, so much of what matters to a manager doing their job well happens away from our view. Like we just can't see into that stuff. So there's, you know, there's that piece of it that mm-hmm. I think it is a tangible thing for us to latch onto. But I think that you're right that like a more, you know, there's something to the idea of like a team making it to October, but we could probably zoom out a little bit and say, well, how many, how many postseasons did the manager's club participate in and have that sit alongside? Like what was their regular season winning record? What am I trying to say? What is the regular season record? I could just say that. I could just say record. You don't have to say winning record. That's part of it, you know? Hopefully it was a winning record, yeah. But I think that, I think it's fine for us to think about the postseason part of it. And then, you know, if there are any particularly egregious managerial decisions, sure, you maybe factor those in. But yeah, it, it seems it seems like a lot to put on the manager to say, well, your, your Hall of Fame chances hinge on you having won a ring. And it's like, well, I don't know. That seems sort of silly, but it's a hard position to evaluate for voters. So I get I get why you grab onto the ones where you can like count a thing. We love to mm-hmm. count stuff. Yes. Count the rings. Yeah. Well, I wanted to mention this also because Dave Dombrowski's resume now bolstered even further. But what an incredible career this guy has had. I feel like I haven't talked enough about just what a career he has had over such a long period because he is now he's now won a pennant with with four different organizations. I, yeah. I believe he is the first GM ever to do so and is attempting to become the first GM to win a World Series with three different teams. So his Hall of Fame resume, like they don't put a lot of executives in the Hall of Fame. But I can't imagine that they could keep him out whether the Phillies win this series or not. Just like looking at at what he has done, because like he's not mentioned probably as often as some of his contemporaries. Like he didn't have a Moneyball book written about him. There's no Dombrowski ball. 
and there's no like the the amount of attention that Andrew Friedman has gotten, that Theo Epstein has gotten, that Billy Bean has gotten. Like Dombrowski, I, I don't think has has had that. Maybe because he's been kind of itinerant and and he's been working here and there, and so yeah. he's not associated with one organization, perhaps, or maybe it's because his style has evolved over the years and he's done different things in different places, which, if anything, is a point in his favor. But it would be hard to to pinpoint exactly like what's the Dombrowski way or like what's the the inefficiency that he exploited at least earlier in his career. But he's really he's done. Everything. I mean, he started with the White Sox, then he goes to the Expos, and he built up a good young homegrown team there and left to join the Marlins, but the Expos won with largely the team that he constructed. Like, you know, they had the best record when the strike happened in 94, which is the great what if of former Expos fandom. Sure. That was largely a Dombrowski built team. Then he goes to the Marlins. An expansion team starts with them before they're even in existence and builds them up and, you know, built up a, a lot of uh, good young talent there and good player development acumen. And, and of course, when they won the World Series in 97, it was with a lot of high priced imports. And, and then he presided over that Jeffrey Loria fire sale. But he also had homegrown talent there. And then developed a new crop of young players with the Marlins who went on to be the foundation of the 2003 World Series winning team. He again had moved on by that point, went to the Tigers. The Tigers were terrible. He built the Tigers up into a really great team, won two pennants, never quite broke through and won a World Series, but turned them into a perennial contender, developed a lot of good players. Then moves on to this latter phase of his career here where he's kind of like the closer where you call in Dombrowski to just get over the hump. And then he wins a World Series with the Red Sox and maybe the greatest season in that franchise's history. Yeah. And then now he goes to the Phillies and he's won a pennant there somewhat unexpectedly. And, you know, I guess like in his current incarnation – There doesn't seem to be a ton of subtlety to what he does, and maybe that's why he doesn't get the cred. Maybe that's why there's no Dombrowski ball book, because it's just like he signs a lot of good players or trades for a lot of good players. So like earlier in his career, he was the person building up the talent in the farm system, and now often he's the one trading it away to, to go get good players, which is... A skill also, certainly, maybe people imagine that it's an easier skill to replicate that, you know, going out and and getting the high-priced player, that's something anyone could do in theory, but he seems to have the ability to talk owners into spending, right, and and loosening the purse strings and just going and getting that last piece that the team needs. And I don't know that we can give him, like, an enormous amount of credit for what the Phillies have done this year, just in that... They barely made it into the playoffs, right? And they weren't a great team, certainly. And, you know, I think Schwarber was a very good signing and and Castellanos didn't pay off quite so much. And a lot of the foundations of this team predate 
him, right? So just as he left other organizations, then he went on to success without him. You could say that some of the foundations of, of this team are from the earlier era, from the Matt Clintac era. And he's not the one who signed Harper, right? Or, or Wheeler, right? Like these guys were there and he sort of supplemented and may or may not leave the Phillies in a better place when it's all said and done. And like, obviously there were some deals that were made with the Red Sox that don't look so great in retrospect, but like they've sure. already, you know, built their way back up, right? And he's not going to be the guy trading away Mookie Betts, at least. There's right. that. He might trade the prospect who who could turn out to be great one day, but he's not going to be the guy coming in and trading your current superstar. It's like if you can persuade Dave Dombrowski to work for you now, it's because you already have some semblance of a contending team. Like he's probably not at this stage of his career going to want to get in on the ground floor and, and build things from scratch. So right. he's going to be the one you you call to come in and put the finishing touches on the roster and, and take you to the promised land. But the fact that he's done these different ways of, of team building and winning yeah. and that he's he's done it in so many different places. Like like you just said, if it's if it's fair to judge a front office person or at least fairer to judge a front office person by the team's success or by the number of titles, like the fact that he's done it in, in so many places is is kind of incredible because like it's different ownership groups, it's different markets, it's different levels of investment, et cetera, et cetera. And he's kind of in the constant wherever he goes, he seems to produce winners. I think that, you know, it's not that he's never traded good players away or good prospects away. He's certainly done that, but he does, I think, have a sense of like who ought not to be messed with some of the time. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like Devers is still a Red Sox, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're in a position where they're not entirely bereft of some of the, the guys who you would think, you know, might be important organizational pieces right like Mm -hmm. he can who knows what he will end up doing but like he didn't trade xander bogarts right (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you know there are times where he has looked at guys and said no this is this player is a foundational piece of what we're trying to do here we're not going to move them and i think that being able to go into an ownership group and persuade them to spend money in this era of baseball should not be like an Mm underappreciated skill right like that means something because I think you're right now we can I guess have a conversation about wh- how well off the the org would be if they still had Mookie Betts but like if he's still in charge I doubt they they don't trade Mookie Betts right no. like Mm-mm. they don't do that they probably extend him they give him a big contract would they be better off with him I mean like I feel like they'd probably be pretty well off with Mookie Betts because it's Mookie <laughs> Betts and like mm-hmm. if your skill is getting ownership to say no, we want to. We're we're trying to build a championship team. We're trying to compete right now, and part of what we need to do is spend money. Like you sign Mookie Betts, and that doesn't have to be the last thing you do. You're the Boston Red Sox. You can do other stuff on top of that. You print money every year, mm-hmm. right? Like so, I get that there have been times where his approach has left organizations prospect poor, and I don't. You know, there's there's a conversation to be had about like how much that matters, but. You're right that like he has won a bunch of places. He's gotten ownership to commit to the hard part, which is spending money, which should be the easy part because you can just spend money. 
you know, like to mm-hmm. a point and you have to pay luxury tax and all of that stuff. And I get that like, that's not the way that teams operate now, but like spending money is a lot easier than having to deal prospects, like spend money instead. That's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Cause then, you know, it's just like money, like, mm-hmm. you know, money's fungible prospects aren't. So I agree. I think that he has a weird at times overlooked quality to his career. And I think the part of it is that there is this persistent sense that like what he will do is he will come in and he will trade your future away and all you'll get in return is like literally a world series <laughs> like what is this balance that we're doing right. and that doesn't mean that every move he's ever made has been the right one and that he hasn't traded good players away but sometimes you have to trade good players to get really good players back i don't know it's it's a weird it's a weird career to try to evaluate because he seems to have done the thing that we most often judge front offices on over and over again, which is winning a World Series. And yet there's like, I don't know if it's just because we're like so process oriented or what, but we're like, well, but not that way. And it's like, but they have the World Series ring. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the thing about it is if you look at that Red Sox team, they won a World Series. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. all watched it. (laughs) Yeah, if you look at their offseason moves from last winter, Probably like the dollars per war on that was not great this year, which absolutely no one will care about because they won a pennant now. And look, Castellanos was like a replacement level player. Schwarber was more valuable, obviously, perhaps not as valuable as, as one would expect given his home run total. But like it was so close in the end, they just so barely made it that, yeah, I guess he could have spent that money more quote-unquote, efficiently, right? He he could have perhaps uh, signed better players than the players that he signed. But ultimately, even if it's just like a brute force approach to it, it's like, here's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and it'll just get us like that all-important last couple of wins that they needed ultimately to get into the playoffs. And then once you're in the playoffs, well, this kind of thing can happen. Right. So- he didn't make the Real Muto trade, for instance, but he sure. did keep Real Muto around. He signed right. Real Muto to a big extension, right. and he's been a core part of this team. So, again, I guess it's just that, like, yeah, we we prize the executives who like see something others don't, or or they're able to tap into some unsuspected skills, or they you know some underappreciated player they pick off the scrap pile or something, and. Yeah, of course, all of that can be very valuable. And and I guess it would be harder to write a Moneyball-style book about, like, you know, you don't have the Billy Bean at the table with the scouts kind of conversation about the 50 feet of crap. It's just like, yeah, we're up here and we're just going to sign some good free agents. Maybe the drama, the conflict, the narrative is not there, but ultimately the winning is. And that's something that, that Billy Bean has not been able to do in the playoffs. I was thinking about this because friend of the show Brian Bannister had a, a Twitter thread about Dombrowski this week and Bannister is, is now the director of pitching for the Giants but he worked under Dombrowski for the Red Sox for five years and he had this thread where he said he's sharing why Dombrowski is such a special baseball executive and here is what Bannister said he has a tremendous pulse on his organization Dave is always present. He's in the manager's office, the coach's room. He's on every road trip. If there is a fire to put out or something isn't working, he calls everyone together and finds a solution fast. 
So again, not that most GMs are like absentee or anything, but they all seem to work pretty hard. But I guess if you want to give someone credit for deciding to move on from Joe Girardi when they did, well, perhaps that's uh, Dombrowski seeing that something isn't working and calling for a solution. He continued, he responds to everything. If you send him a letter, he always writes you back. If you send him a text, he always texts you back. I've sent him texts throughout this postseason, even mid-game. He's texted me back every time and usually within minutes. He believes in blue-chip players. So this is kind of what we were just getting at. In today's analytical game, it's often about who wins the trade or dollars per war or other internal valuation metrics. Baseball teams have become very smart, but this can lead to a lack of trade liquidity. By always waiting patiently for quote-unquote smart trades or avoiding larger free agent contracts, it admittedly reduces career risk and public scrutiny. But by being willing to lose a trade slightly at times from a valuation perspective, it gives you access to special players. Dave believes that players with a proven track record have special qualities and will rise to the occasion, especially in the postseason. This occurred when we won the World Series in 2018, and it's occurring for the Phillies right now. Now, Bannister acknowledges this approach is less sustainable long term, but it can result in juggernaut teams. With Dave, there is no doubt that the only goal is to win a ring. If everybody else at the poker table is playing the safe percentages, the person willing to risk more chips can be disruptive. And he hires talented people, allows them to do great things. The freedom and trust that Dave gives his staff is empowering, et cetera, et cetera, creative freedom. And then it goes on to talk about treating people with respect and other behind-the-scenes things that we would not see quite as much. But people like him and respect him, and, and apparently it's mutual anyway. That's kind of what we were getting at. And I guess you could say, well, that's easy for Dave Dombrowski to do or not easy but easier at this point when he's in his mid-60s he's already like made his money and his resume and it's you know he's won his rings and his pennants and and he's clearly being called in to do this very specific job of just hey get me like from the one yard line to the end zone or you know not one yard line but (laughs) somewhere in that half of the field so if like other gms were tasked with that exact task then maybe they could do that too you know maybe they're just not operating that way because that's not what they were hired to do but he's really good at doing that thing that he was hired to do seemingly so you just you got to give him credit that it's uh it's quite a career and a legacy he has built up here yeah i think that like we're probably guilty of this, so I don't mean to like give us a pass, but it's like you look at an organization like Tampa where it's like you are setting out to do an already hard thing and it is being made harder for you by circumstance because you work for a team that doesn't want to spend a lot of money. And I think that we appreciate cleverness and we appreciate like a team overcoming that circumstance and we can sometimes lose sight of the fact that even if you're the Red Sox, even if you're the Dodgers, even if you're the Yankees, even if you're a Phillies team that is willing to spend, it's still incredibly hard to do. And you can spend badly. Some of those Detroit teams he oversaw, one could argue, maybe didn't spend super wisely all the time, right? But Mm -hmm. they spent. So just because you are not having to overcome a self-imposed deficit doesn't mean you're not setting out to do an incredibly hard thing, you know? And that doesn't mean that, like, Dombrowski's not above reproach. Like, we are watching a team 
comprised almost exclusively of DHs, right? And mm-hmm. it turns out you only get the one, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's this weird thing. You only get the one DH, and yet here they are trying to do this thing. So it's not like there aren't things you can point to with even this Phillies team and be like, well, there might be some roster construction weirdness here, right? Yeah. Like, we can do that. I think that that's a perfectly reasonable, like, accusation is probably stronger than I mean, but, like, thing to note about this team that he, you know, is spearheading, but... I also think that just because they are not having to recover from self-inflicted budgetary wounds doesn't mean that what you're doing by reaching the World Series is any less impressive. It just means you didn't like put ankle weights on before you tried to run the race. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, and I think it's important for us collectively to note the difference, right? Because if you don't, you can get overly charmed by people having to overcome their own self-imposed hardships. And it's like, that isn't necessarily charming. Like you can just spend money instead. So Mm -hmm. I think you're right. It's a good thing to grapple with. Yeah. And because there's just so much random variation that happens here, like if the Brewers had won a couple more games, like the Phillies right. would not have made the playoffs and we right. would not be talking about Dave Dabrowski right now. And that very easily could have happened. Or if the Red Sox, like that was a great team, but they could have not won the World Series and, and then things would look a little different. And then if you don't convert the way that he has, like once he converts, like you can trade all the prospects you want and tie up all the money sure. you want and no one will care that much if you win that World Series. Like, you know, I guess some Red Sox fans, like, not that long after that World Series were like, why did we sign this guy to this contract? I know, like, fans have uh, pretty pretty short grace periods, typically. Sure. But if you win the World Series, then it, it does kind of justify everything. Like, you could leave your farm system just a smoking wasteland for the next person, and you get to ride off into the sunset. Hey, I did my job. I won the World Series. I got my ring. And a lot of that is dependent on having a great postseason run and and actually winning that series instead of not winning that series. So again, a lot of that could have gone the other way too. But the fact that he's done it so many times in so many different places is the thing that really impresses me over such a long period too. Like, I mean, he's been in the game for like, what, 45 years or something at this point. Like (laughs) everything has changed since then. And he has remains adaptable and, and nimble enough to at least like seemingly recognize talent and, and put people in place to be able to operate in these conditions. So there's something to be said for that too, just to be able to adjust and not only win one way or in one place or, or at one time, but to keep doing it. And when you've done it in this many places, this many times, yeah, any one of those times, a lot of things probably had to go right for you to win. But on the whole, when you you keep proving repeatedly that you can deliver, then it's probably not just a fluke. It's it's Dave Dombrowski. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you you are but a man who looks like George Plimpton. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you mm-hmm. you start from there and then you add baseball to it and see what happens. Yeah. Hall of Fame hair, too. Yeah. And I guess we should note there was a, a managerial hiring while we're talking about evaluating managers yeah. and, and such. So Skip Schumacher is now the Marlins manager, 
which is, uh, I guess, a guy named Skip is on the nose, really, as a manager. I guess he's not technically named Skip. His actual name is Jared. (laughs) You mean he wasn't named Skip at birth? Seems that he was not. Jared Michael Schumacher. But yeah, I mean, do you call him Skip? I don't know how common Skip is as a managerial nickname these days anyway, but, but if it were... Would you avoid calling him Skip? Because then it might just sound like you were calling him by his his name or his nickname. Oh, how interesting. So you think that by virtue of his nickname being Skip, if a player called him Skip. Yeah, it's like too informal. It's like Yeah, interesting. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm going to think about that for a long time, I think. Because, yeah, it's not like, you know you're you're doing your retrospective on the season in front of your locker as a Yankee and going, well, Aaron said, you know, like that would be mm-hmm. wild. That would be un- unheard of. Yeah. And it's so funny because we're we're more comfortable with the nickname, which seems inherently less formal, right? right. So we're we're we are comfortable with informality, but not familiarity. Yeah. But then again, a nickname is a mark of familiarity. What is our standard <laughs> here? What value are we trying to uphold, Ben? It's <laughs> a good question. Language but... is wild. Yeah, Love it. I, I guess you could call him Skipper. Because, Skip, like, Skip you know, if you're if you're a guy, let's say that you're pick a nickname. Pick a nickname for a an American man. Chuck. Chuck. Pick a different nickname. Pick a nickname for... It doesn't have to be an American man, right? Like, part of the problem here is that we sometimes uh, aren't talking to enough folks. So pick a pick a man's nickname that isn't Chuck. <laughs> That's the only nickname I could That's currently think of. That's the only nickname you know. <laughs> Every other nickname has flown out okay. of my mind. No, Chuck is the only one. <laughs> we're going to pick, pick a manager who we thought to maybe be on the hot seat, but it sounds like he's going to keep his job. So, like, Aaron Boone, right? Mm, okay. I think that there are people in baseball you tell me if i'm right i think that there are people in baseball who call aaron boone boonie right oh, yeah, they call him sure. boonie right of course okay mm-hmm. so like congratulations ben you're now a player for the new york yankees right mm-hmm. and uh you're coming in to try to write the shortstop ship right okay mm-hmm. congratulations so you're you're a yankee and you will refer to your manager aaron boone as boonie right and i i am a i am meg and I don't play for the Yankees, and I am uh, I'm there in the clubhouse to do some reporting, and we run into each other. If I called Aaron Boone Booney, you mm-hmm. would look at me weird and be like, "You don't have a right to that, right?" Yeah. You'd yeah, be like, be "That's yeah. that's not for you. You're not part of this yeah. circle of 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 no feel." Yeah, mm-hmm. right. You'd be like, "That's inappropriate," and mm-hmm. you'd tell other players like. She's she doesn't get it. It's not right. She doesn't mm-hmm. have feel for the situation because she can't call him Booney. Yeah, you know. So <laughs> it is a thing that is both less formal than calling him Aaron, and more familiar than uh, and and familiar, right? Fundamentally yeah. familiar because it is a thing that if of you know like if if people on Twitter try to call me by a nickname that only my family uses, which is funny. Again, because I go by Meg as my pen name, even though my name is Megan, mm-hmm. you know, I bristle because I'm like, I don't know you. Like, you don't get to call me that because you're mm-hmm. not, 
you're not one of my people and I don't have anything against you, but you're not entitled to that because we're not mm-hmm. familiar. We're not friends. Right. So anyway, this has been me trying to understand language for like four or five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chuck was really the only nickname you could think it. of. Yeah. Chuck. That was all I could. That was it. <laughs> do you know any, <laughs> do you know anyone who goes by Chuck? Do you know a Chuck? <laughs> I'm trying to think if I, if I know a Chuck. <laughs> I mean, like we all know of Chucks, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you're from, I've... you know, you're from New York. Like, your your senator goes by Chuck. Yeah, I have, but I have you don't know him. I assume worked you're not... for the same website as and and emailed with Chuck Klosterman. I wouldn't sure. say I I know him, but I right. would call him Chuck if I were to meet him. Right, but Chuck Klosterman goes by Chuck publicly yes. chuck is one of those names that you say it four times and you're like that's not a name yeah <laughs> yeah barely a word once you've this said it four is, times uh, in a row this is weird i remember sam once wrote an article about baseball nickname conventions I mean, mostly yeah. it's just like add a y to everything yeah. i think but it's not an hence ironclad bo- rule it's boony right exactly right but yes it is a it is a weird bit of business because you're right that i think a, a manager would look at a player calling him by his actual like given first name and think that's inappropriate mm-hmm. but yeah. you can call him Booney, you know mm-hmm. well that's like a it's not a name at all yeah all your weird business it's a strange job anyway <laughs> i guess when you look at skip schubacher and you see that he has like a career 0.9 war according to fan graphs and yet he played 1,149 career games in the majors and got almost 3,600 plate appearances. Like, that's a future manager right there. <laughs> if yeah. you managed to have that long a career and you weren't actually that valuable as a player, although maybe he was perceived to be more at the time than he would be now. But still, you know, you can usually guess that maybe there's some sort of clubhouse thing going around. You know, people like him. He's yeah. a mentor. He's a leader. He wasn't hurting himself in the character personality department probably because you could be deficient in those respects if you were a very good player and still hang around. But if you're not, it might be tough. So that's a, a sign perhaps. And and he is a, a first-time manager, I think, at any right. level, although he was weirdly an associate manager yeah. with Jace Tingler with the Padres. Yeah. But he's been a, a big league coach for several years now. He was Ali Marmel's bench coach with the Cardinals this year. So he seems to have been much in demand. He's 42, I guess. It seemed like the <laughs> the trend was now circling back to just hiring very old and experienced managers after what seemed to be a period of hiring more Schumacher types of, you know, younger, recently retired managers, although Marmol is one, certainly. But I guess there's still interest in, in a, some new blood. And uh, I don't know anything about how he'll be as a manager, but people seem to to like him and, and appreciate the hire. Although I do hope that the guys who also interviewed, who seemingly have been bouncing around for a long time, like Joe Espada, Luis Rojas, yeah. the, the Yankees third base coach, also Matt Quattraro, the, the Rays bench coach. Yeah. But, you know, it's a very white group on the yeah. whole managers. Like yep. that's been a sort of a persistent storyline. So who knows? Not saying that entered into the equation here at all. Just saying that, like, you know, you, you see that happen many times and other qualified candidates seem to have the, the qualifications that a manager often does are kind of in the interview 
merry-go-round or not yeah. so merry-go-round right and yeah after a certain amount of time you, you start to wonder like is this just for show interviews like why are they not getting hired yeah. anyway not impugning this specific process. I know nothing about it. Skip Schumacher, like, he seems to fit the bill, too. But, you know, you just wonder because, like, there are some names that get mentioned uh, a whole lot and right. don't get jobs. So Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is in some ways how this stuff can kind of persist because if you drill into any particular hiring process, you'd be like, well, that's totally above board. But then nothing changes at the macro level. So we got to yeah. inter I think we have to interrogate those processes even when we don't have reason to think that they're you know being biased in any you know overt or maybe even intentional way and be like well yeah but it it sure does seem like there are guys who don't have managerial experience who get hired and some of those guys kind of look a particular way perhaps at the expense of other guys who have either you know, managed at the minor league level for a while or who have similarly sort of proven themselves in a bench coach kind of capacity. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for us to ask that question because you're right. There are a lot of names that we have come to know as perennial candidates and it right. would be nice to know them as big league managers instead. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Manny Act is a guy I always think of as uh, yeah. I wonder why he hasn't gotten another chance. He got a couple. He was a sure. manager for the Nationals and, and with Cleveland too. I was just looking at his Twitter and, and someone was tweeting at him about why is Manny Acta not getting a new opportunity to manage? And he said, I've learned to be okay about things I can't control. Yeah, I was looking at his Twitter just the other day because he came out as a mound move backer which mm. I was excited to see. He endorsed the idea of moving the mound back to 62 feet, and he was going on a, a whole thread about how, you know, there are other factors too, nothing like the short reaction time that hitters have now contributing to strikeout rates that swings and defense and all those things are factors, but he's uh, pointing out that it's just very hard to to hit the ball as it is pitched today. I was just happy to see that because I still don't know if that would work, but I still cannot quit the idea. And it's exciting for me when someone who is like in the game and very experienced in the game sees some value in it because uh, often with people who've been in the game for a long time, it's like, no, we must stick with the way things have been yeah. done. But he's always seemed like just a, a smart person to me. And I don't know if yeah. it's just that I'm I'm biased because he's sort of, you know, sabermetrically oriented and, and was a baseball prospectus reader and was like yeah. endorsing that back when it was still strange to hear that kind of thing from someone who is in uniform. But I mean, yeah, I'd like to see him get to manage a good team someday. Anyway. Yeah. So just a couple last things I want to note. One is that games this postseason have not been super long, which is kind of nice. Uh, Anthony Castrovince. I mean, excuse some of them have. Excuse you. <laughs> <laughs> some of them certainly have. But on the whole. Yes, on the I, whole. I felt they like have not been. The pace and the length has been pretty good. And Anthony Castrovince did a, a five things we've learned from a wild 22 postseason for MLB.com. And, and one of them, he's making the case that it's about pitchcom that we have not mm. seen as much slowing down with runners on base as we normally would in the postseason because of pitchcom. I don't know how much of it is pitchcom, but he noted that the average time of a nine-inning postseason game dropped from three hours and 37 minutes last year to three hours and 21 minutes so far this year, which is better, yeah. obviously, shorter. I mean, it seems like postseason games get longer and longer every year, and I have not felt 
so much slog this postseason. Yeah. It, it's it's felt like it's moved at a pretty decent pace. So I don't know if it's PitchCom. I don't know if it is the fact that just scoring has been down. There just hasn't been much offense, and so that'll tend to move games along. This is, uh, according to Baseball Savant, the, the postseason WOBA this year so far, 283. That is the second lowest after 2012 going back to 2008, which is what they have in their site. So it's been an offensive outage too. And I guess starting pitchers have have gone a little deeper as we've discussed, perhaps because of the offensive outage, but that might mean fewer pitching changes. So could also account for some of the upsets, the lower scoring, the run environment, the more upset friendly it is. Whatever the explanation it's uh, It's been kind of nice. It hasn't felt like things have gotten quite as bogged down as yeah. I'm accustomed to seeing in the postseason. Yeah, I, I agree. It does feel like they have moved at a clip. I mean, I know when we did our Patreon live stream of... <laughs> <laughs> Which game was it? <laughs> uh, we did it during what proved to NLCS be a... yes Yeah. Four? Four? Yeah. Yep. Because it was the bullpen day. Yes. When the first inning took an hour and we thought, oh no, oh no, we are going to be here all night. We Mm -hmm. live here now. But even in that game where the first inning was so protracted, it got back on on track pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And and kind of moved along at a decent clip and didn't strike me as being like overly long. So, yeah, I think it's uh I think it has been fine and has been, you know, kind of zippy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Snapping my fingers to make it to indicate it zippy. I don't have like an accordion to play, which is how you indicate zip <laughs> if you're Italian you know, an accordion. I also wanted to note that Shohei Otani's former team, the Nipponham Fighters, the NPB professional entry draft was held late last week, and the Fighters drafted a two-way player <gasps> named Kota Yazawa. And I just wanted to mention that just in case he turns into a story, he turns into something. You heard it here first, unless you heard it somewhere else first. But this has been very rare in NPB, even post-Otani. There's not been any wave of two-way players or anything, according to Jim Allen. I think this is just the the second time post-Otani that someone has been drafted as a two-way player. Hmm. And the first one was uh, not even allowed to, to two-way play. It was... Uh, Junya Nishi of the Hanshin Tigers. He was drafted as a two-way player, but then specialized even before his career started. So it's still very rare, but the fighters kind of an out-of-the-box team, and obviously they they have the history of Otani, and they have big boss Siyoshi Shinjo as their manager. That's right. Yeah, he's not going by Big Boss apparently anymore. He is retired Big Boss. He's he's just Shinjo again, but still quite a character. Anyway, they have uh, drafted. Kota Yazawa, and I don't want to set expectations too high. He is not the next Otani. As far as I can see, like he maxes out. It looks like at like ninety four on the mound, and I think I think he's only like five eight or something. He's not a a big guy according to pictures I've seen and and one bio page I saw. But they're gonna give him a chance, and they seem excited about it. Shinjo is quoted as saying, "When no other team named him." I jumped and shouted. This was in the first round. He was uh, a star for Nippon Sports Science University, and he seems like he's confident. He said he's uh, looking forward to facing the best young players there are, Murakami and Sasaki. He wants to pitch and bat against them, respectively. He wants to strike batters out and hit home runs. 
So it seems like the right organization to be with. No idea whether he will actually persist in, in two-way play or whether he will be a success. There's no no other Otani, really, even if you let someone else try. I don't know that anyone else has the, the physical skills and the build and, and everything else that Otani has. But nice to see someone at least uh, take a run at it. So yeah. good luck to him. Agreed. Okay, let's see here. I have – we have neglected to do – a stat blast for a while here. Mm. So I have what should be a fairly quick one, I think. So Stat Blast, as always, is brought to you by the Baseball Reference StatHead tool, which even though we have not done a formal Stat Blast segment in a while, we've uh, cited the StatHead tool and we've used the StatHead tool because even if we were not sponsored by StatHead, we would still be using it and citing it all the time because we actually do believe in it. This is not just marketing speech. We're not reading ad copy here. We really love and use StatHead and, and always have. So go to StatHead.com. Check out all the options that are available there, not just MLB, also other leagues, but you can use our coupon code WILD20 to get a $20 discount on the $80 one-year subscription. So a couple questions we have gotten here. So here's one from Justin, Patreon supporter, who says, as one is wont to do, I got lost amid the aisles of baseball reference this evening. See, baseball reference. It's not even sponsored. This is not a setup or anything. It was just inspired by a question about baseball reference. While being distracted from my original mission of researching early Latino players, I stumbled upon a significant milestone within Major League Baseball historical totals. Measuring from 1876 to the present, all-time home runs have eclipsed all-time stolen bases. As of today, when he sent this September 28th, there have been 1,093 more homers than steals. If you measure from 1871, taking account of the National Association to the present, there are still 600 more steals than homers. For argument's sake, let's take 1876, the start of the National League, as the official starting point. My question is, who slugged the home run that turned the tide of history? Secondly, I have to imagine this is the first time homers have eclipsed stolen bases on the all-time list, or is it? So I asked Ryan Nelson about this. It's tough to to pinpoint, but he notes the real answer is that stolen bases weren't tracked in their current form until 1887. So the stolen base is actually still likely ahead of the homer. But if we track from 1887 forward, the home run all-time total just passed the stolen base all-time total in 2021. In fact, it was specifically on April 27th, 2021, MLB entered that day with 29 more all-time stolen bases than homers. On that day, there were 37 homers and 6 stolen bases. You could go through those game logs and attempt to pick out who it was exactly who did it. Looks like it was most likely someone in the Rockies-Giants game that day. So we will leave it to them. So we're obviously in a, a home run over stolen base era here, but that could be changing potentially, right? Because... If we have 
stolen bases boosted next year with the relaxed pickoff attempt rules or or I guess the tightened pickoff attempt rules depending on your perspective if mm. we see stolen bases leap up if MLB gets its way and we get a more contact oriented brand of baseball with no shifting and more incentive to put the ball in play or so MLB imagines who knows? Maybe stolen bases could could nose ahead again one of these years. Perhaps this is not settled permanently. Perhaps not. But if I had to bet. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the arc of history here has trended toward power yeah. over speed in, in baseball. But again, it fluctuates. It goes up and down depending on the era. All right. So that is one question. Another question we got, this came from Max, another Patreon supporter, who said, in the Mets versus Cubs game on September 12th, Michael Givens came in to pitch the top of the 7th and 8th innings. In the bottom of the 8th, D.H. Daniel Vogelbach hit in his spot in the batting order, 5th, and walked. Givens is then inserted as the pinch runner for Vogelbach, removing Vogelbach from the game. Has this ever been done before? I guess Givens never was replaced in the game as he was the most recent pitcher to pitch and then Vogelbach reaches first. He removes the DH from the game. We've seen pitchers being inserted as pinch runners before, but it feels rare to see the current pitcher be inserted for the current DH when he is already in the game. So Ryan, our frequent stat bless consultant, find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. He said, took me a few times to wrap my head around this one as far as searching the data went. But he finally found this video, which he links for me, and I will also link on the show page, but it's from the YouTube account Close Call Sports, and it's called Ask an Ump, Can a Pitcher Pinch Run for the Designated Hitter? And it happened in this case, July 26, 2020. So Ryan found this video, proving that it had happened at least once, and he was able to use that to figure out how the data is represented when this happens. Using that, I was able to find that this Michael Lorenzen example, this is from 2020, is one of only two times in history that this had happened coming into this year. The only other one was Keith Atherton on July 23rd, 1984. That's it. So now, I guess, with this Givens-Vogelbach example, there have been three. So this required a DH, so it it had to be in the last 50 years or so. But still, it has apparently happened only three times in those years. And it's weird enough that when it happens, people question, is this something that can happen? Is this Does this break baseball or not? But apparently, no, it does not. It is just uh, very rare. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And last one I have here. This was submitted by two listeners, actually. So one is Paul, Patreon supporter, who says, George Springer just got his 1,000th career hit. Now, this was sent in mid-August, August August 17th, but we got around to it eventually, which Mm -hmm. also happened to be his first career pinch hit. So his 1,000th career hit was also his first career pinch hit. Paul says, this feels like a lot of career hits before a first pinch hit. So is this interesting? Maybe not, as players who mostly start for most of their career would not have many pinch hit opportunities until later in their career when they would have racked up a lot of career hits. So he points out it might not be notable, but it might. We also got this question from Claude, a Patreon supporter, 
who asked about this just this month, which jogged my memory, even though this happened in mid-August, and he noted that Springer previously was 0 for 10 as a pinch hitter. So he had pinch hit, he just had not pinch hit, (laughs) if you know what I mean. (laughs) So this question, has anyone had more career hits than George Springer before their first career pinch hit? And the answer is yes. And in fact, many, many, many more (laughs) hits than that. So the answer is A-Rod. Alex Rodriguez. Yeah, Alex Rodriguez got his first pinch hit in 2013. He had 2,919 career hits at the time. Yeah. So he had had pinch hit opportunities. So 96 through 2010... Looks like he he pinch hit, uh, let's see, one, three, five, eight, ten, thirteen times, I guess, before finally doing it successfully. So it it took a while for him to, to do this. Or no, even more than that, 14 times, 17 times. I think it was maybe his 18th. I'm trying to minimize my live counting on the podcast, but something like his 18th opportunity as a pinch hitter. And he just had not had a pinch hit until this day in 2013. So he is the leader, 2,919 hits when he got his first pinch hit. And Ryan notes, as far as we know... Cap Anson never had a pinch hit appearance, and he had 3,435 hits. So if we can trust that data, that would be the most hits before a pinch hit, but he never got one either, so not sure if that counts. After A-Rod, Cal Ripken got his first pinch hit with 2,911 hits, just shy of A-Rod. Then Derek Jeter with 2,846, Luis Aparicio with 2,284, and Billy Herman with 2,128 They are the only players to have more than 2,000 hits by the time they got their first pinch hit. However, 43 other players got to 1,000 before their first pinch hit. So Springer is not an outlier, but he is in the top 50, even if just barely. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. So we will end with the past blast. This is episode 1921. And as always... This past blast comes from the year of the episode number, which in this case is 1921, and it comes from Sabres' Jacob Pomeranke and Black Sox expert Jacob Pomeranke. This one, he titles it 1921, a short series and a long format. We actually just alluded to this the other day. The 1921 World Series was the last one to be played using an experimental best-of-nine format, and the first where every game was played in the same ballpark. The New York Giants beat Babe Ruth's Yankees with every game being held at the polo grounds, which the two teams shared. So I guess you can't call it a home field advantage. Or if it is, it's for both of them. Giants manager John McGraw was one of the few people in baseball who objected to the change in format for the World Series. Here's what McGraw told reporters a few months after the Giants won the 21 World Series. Quote, I'm of the opinion that the best 5-9 and nine affords a much more fair and decisive test as to which is the better team than the old plan of 4-7. Mm. In the shorter series, there are many more chances for luck to figure in the final result. A best 4-7 series has very seldom been convincing to establish in my mind the fact of the winner's superiority beyond a doubt. But when the series is played in the same city, as it would be again between the Giants and Yankees in 1922 and 1923, McGraw said he was in favor of a seven-game series instead. 
The mental and physical strain on the spectators, he said, was such that it is more tiresome, it is painful, the daily drag of the pocketbooks of the patrons is to be considered. The players also need a relief from the mental strain they are under. They absolutely require the relaxation that travel from one city to another affords, a day's rest. And Jacob concludes, in most of the previous Best of Nine World Series, attendance had fallen the longer the World Series went on. You might think it would increase because yeah. we're getting closer to the clincher, but no, it tailed off. Only 25,410 fans showed up to the polo grounds for the Giants' one nothing win in Game 8 of the 1921 World Series. So I guess even though the stakes are super high at that point, it's like, haven't we seen this show before in the same city, in the same park? We can't just keep coming every day. So forget about the best of 75 series that you would really need to reliably have the better team advance. Even best of nine seems to to tire the fans, at least when it's in the same city and they're going to the same park every day. But interesting that McGraw was like, you know, best of seven? No, not enough. <laughs> that that doesn't decide anything. We need the best of nine, but we haven't had it now. We're uh, almost at the century ago, Mark, with the past blessed. So next wow. time we will finally catch up to 100 years ago. Wow, what are what are we gonna do when we go through all? all That's this? been a a topic of some discussion I've seen among the listeners. Uh, yeah. Some have assumed we will retire the segment. Yeah. Some some have wanted us to to continue into a hypothetical future and do a a past blast of the future where we supply what happens. I don't know. We'll have to think about Man. it. Yeah, yeah. We need to invent time travel. I think is really the only possibility yeah. here because as it is I, I think we're on track to to catch up sometime around the middle of, of next year or next season sometime wow. so yeah you know ben we do a lot of uh shows for this show we know? do we do yeah. a lot of episodes so mm -hmm. interesting all right well that's the end of this one all right, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help us keep going, help us stay ad-free aside from our Stathead sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Ben Beanstalk, not as in Jack and the Beanstalk, spelled completely differently. Perhaps it's even pronounced Beanstalk to prevent just this kind of confusion. I'm sorry, Ben. You signed up for Patreon. You're pledging money to support the podcast. And here I am bringing up what is possibly a sore subject without your last name. You don't deserve this. Also another Ben, Benjamin Lowmaster, Michael S., Lena Gordon, and David Kim. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to monthly bonus episodes, one of which Meg and I will be recording this coming weekend, as well as playoff live streams. We'll be doing another of those sometime soon, too. You also get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangrass memberships and access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, now creeping toward 900 members. Join the ranks. You'll enjoy it. You can also write to me and Meg via email at podcastthefangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can browse the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Until we